Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. For those that are new to the Institute of Catholic Culture, my name is Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo. My brother, Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo, someone said earlier, is he really your brother? Are you just calling him brother? He's really my brother. Um, and even more really my brother in Christ. We're going to have the same format as we did last week. I will be giving a short 15 to 20 minute historical introduction. A little, I will confess, on the dry side, but you've got to get your facts down so you know who we're talking about. We will then turn to my brother for a little bit more engaging or spicy topic of apologetics. How do you greet and meet and uh, share your faith with a Seventh-day Adventist? And we are very blessed tonight to have with us Mr. Mike Sensony, who uh, is a former Seventh-day Adventist elder who converted to the Catholic Church, and he will be concluding our evening with the story of his conversion, just like we did last week. Okay, with that said, I will give you the basics, and I mean the basics of the Seventh-day Adventists, a little bit of historical background, and if I appear to be reading some of my notes, it's because I don't want to miss some of those important details for you. The Seventh-day Adventists are the fastest-growing Christian community or church in the world. So if you think Institute of Catholic Culture is studying some strange sect, not at all. And why are they growing? Let me be very clear. It is because the Catholic Church, you and me, we have failed. And whenever we talk about these groups, the Jehovah's Witnesses last week, Mormons next week, it's not because people are crazy. It's because they're seeking something more. The Seventh-day Adventists, as the Jehovah's Witnesses last week, are filled with former Catholics. They left because they wanted something more. And so when we consider these people, we do so in all charity. They have a worldwide baptized men membership of over 16 million and close to 20 million adherents. Okay, so an initial 4 million that are not baptized. They were officially established in 1863 and now have their headquarters in Silver Spring, Maryland. Okay, so right down the road. So if you think you're not going to meet a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, you're wrong. They were founded, as their name explains very clearly, you can just think of their name and you'll know the, the basics of their faith, on two main ideas. Number one, that Christ's return or his second advent is imminent. It's coming any day now. And number two, that true worshipers of God will be divided from the false worshipers of God by one point. And that is that they worship on Saturday, Sunday being the mark of the beast. As I mentioned last week, the whole Adventist movement was started by a, name, a man named William Miller. He was born in 1782. He was raised a Baptist. He was not educated past the age of 18, but he was an avid reader. And he read himself out of the Baptist church and into the deist movement 
What is the deist movement? The deist movement was a movement popular during the Enlightenment. You can go back and listen to our program on the Enlightenment that's posted online. Deists believe in what we might call very simply the clockwork God. That God made creation, set it in motion, and stood back. And does not involve himself in the day-to-day affairs of man. William Miller was shocked out of this position when he became involved in the War of 1812. And this is how he describes his experience there. He said, the fort I was in was exposed to every shot. Bombs, rockets, shrapnel shells fell as thick as hailstones. It seemed to me that the supreme being must have watched over the interests of this country in a special manner and delivered us from the hands of our enemies. So he quickly realized this deist idea did not work with his common experience, and he returned to his Baptist church and began intensely studying the Bible. It was just about that time that both his father and his sister died suddenly. And these experiences, the death of his his father and his sister, and this experience in the war, made him almost consumed with the idea of death and the second coming of Christ. This is why I wanted to have this program for us during this time, because we're heading to the presidential election. I meet so many Catholics. You know, Obama's the Antichrist, and the whole world's going to pot. When's Christ going to return? Okay, well, they might have a good point. But the thing is, I want you to be well-rooted in history so that you're not moved by the latest whim in the latest presidential election, and that, this, that the next candidate is going to be our Messiah. That's not going to happen. When Jesus returns, he's not going to run for office. Okay? Well, Miller was very moved by these events and began observing the current events taking place. He was a man of his time. The idea of Christ's return was nothing new to the Protestant world at the time. In fact, the idea goes back to the year 1798, probably even before that. But in 1798, a great event happened in Rome, and that was that Pope Pius VI was arrested by Napoleon Bonaparte's troops. Well, my dear friends, familiar with Protestant ideas, you'll know that the church is, of course, the whore of Babylon, and the Pope is the Antichrist. And when the Pope is arrested, it marks the beginning of the fall of the whore of Babylon and the beginning of Christ's reign on earth, and therefore the time for Armageddon. Miller grabbed hold of these ideas and began studying the scriptures in detail. He took both the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra and began to calculate the time of Christ's second coming and came up with the dates sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Unfortunately for him, like Charles Taze Russell last week, March 21st, the sun set and nothing happened. Okay, And like Charles Taze Russell last week, who was a good... Uh, say, Millerite student, he suddenly was given the gift of new light. You'll remember new light from last week. New light is always, he wasn't quite wrong before, but now God is showing him a further vision. New light. Okay, I call it, if, you, if, your, if your prophecy fails, try, try again. Okay? Miller then prophesied the end in October 22nd of 1844 and began producing massive numbers of pamphlets in the millions. And uh, by the evening of October 22nd, it is said that he had over 100,000 followers who were eagerly awaiting Christ's return. Well, 
as you know, we're still here today. October 22nd was not the second coming of Christ. This is called the great disappointment among the Seventh-day Adventists. One of his followers, Hiram Edson, wrote this about the experience. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. This is a moving quote, because you imagine, just like I was reading to you last week about 1975 and the Jehovah's Witnesses, these are people that had put all of their stock into this. And here they were left with nothing. Weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. On October 23rd, Edson decided to take a walk to reconsider things. And he found himself with a friend in the middle of a wheat field. And this is what he says. We started, and while passing through a large field, I was stopped about midway of the field. Heaven seemed to open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that, and here's his new light, instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the 10th of the seventh month at the end of the 2,300 days, they're using the Jewish calendar, he for the first time, instead of coming to earth, entered on that day the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary, and that he had a work to perform in the most holy place before coming to earth. In other words, our date wasn't wrong, we just didn't see clearly what he was going to do. This is the the foundation for their doctrine, the investigative judgment, that Christ went into the Holy of Holies on that day. He opened up the books and he evaluated and judged the earth. That all of those living at the time, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ, would be vindicated, and those that were found in the black book, or the book of death, uh, would be condemned. When October 22nd failed to materialize, many, many of the followers, these 100,000 people that were following Miller at the time, dispersed into their former Protestant groups. And when they did that, many returned to their Baptist roots. And among the Baptists at the time, they're still around today, not very popular, were a group called the Seventh-day Baptists. Christians who believed that we should be following the law of Moses and worshiping not on Sunday, but on the Sabbath day, on Saturday. Edson was one of these men that took this doctrine of the Sabbath day And while doing that, held on to the new light which he had received. And he was friends with two very important people, really the founders of the Seventh-day Adventists, James and Ellen G. White. You're going to want to know these names, especially Ellen G. White, considered the founding prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventists. Ellen White confessed later that she had been receiving, well, she claimed to be receiving prophetic visions since December of 1844, and she revealed to her husband James that he was to begin producing a paper, a periodical, to tell people the truth of the seventh day and the truth of Christ's imminent return. White claims to have had hundreds of visions from December 1844 forward. She penned over 50 books, ranging in topics from health to finance to the second coming of Christ. And many of the Seventh-day Adventists, even today, hold her teachings uh, to be something of infallible doctrine. Unfortunately, 
she prophesied that Christ would appear sometime between 1850 and 1860. He failed to do so. She also prophesied that those following her in 1856 would not die, but they would see the second coming of Christ. She also prophesied that she herself would see his second coming, his advent. It was this last prophecy, just as it was with Charles Taze Russell, that finally came true for her, but not as she expected. Uh, Ellen G. White did meet the Lord in 1915 when he came to escort her to her final reward. Among her truly strange doctrines or teachings, if her false prophecies were not enough, was the belief that the two beasts found in the book of Revelation chapter 13. The first beast was the Pope, the Antichrist. And the second beast, who would kind of bring the world to worship the first beast, was the United States government. (laughs) She believed at the time that the U.S. government and the Roman Catholic Church were in cahoots. They were working together. And that it was the uh, vision or mission of the United States government to make all citizens of the United States worship on Sunday. That they had to worship on Sunday. Of course, seeing things as they are today, wouldn't it be nice if that were true? She believed that those that worshipped on Sunday had received the mark of the beast and would be condemned for that mark. She says, it is one of the leading doctrines of Romanism that the Pope is the visible head of the universal church of Christ. He demands the homage of all men. The same claim urged by Satan in the wilderness of temptation is still urged by him, Satan, through the church of Rome. And vast numbers are ready to yield him homage. Some of her other teachings, as Charles Taze Russell taught last week and we looked at, is the doctrine of some some people call soul sleep or the mortality of man. That man does not have a soul as Catholics understand. She believed that he was a union of body, mind, and spirit and that when he died, he ceased to exist. She believed in conditional immortality or the doctrine of annihilationism that when Christ returned, he would judge all men and instead of some suffering hell for all eternity, that they would simply cease to exist, that there would be no hell for all eternity. She also uh, believed that Michael the archangel was the pre-incarnate Christ, that Jesus took to himself a sinful human nature, and yet that he is true God and true man. Through all of this concocted thinking about the Trinity, the Adventists somehow today have come to be Trinitarian, And this is where, at this point with Ellen G. White, we come to the question of whether the Seventh-day Adventists are a cult or not. Remember that when you meet a Seventh-day Adventist on the street, you have to find out who they are. They're not quite as united as the Jehovah's Witnesses are. And you'll find within their ranks, as unfortunately you find within the Catholic Church today, a whole spectrum of people. Some that would remind you very much of modern-day evangelical Protestants. Others that would scare you as downright cult members in their adherence to Ellen G. White as a prophetess, even over the clear teachings of the sacred scriptures. The church, however, recognizes the baptism of the Seventh-day Adventists as they hold in their doctrine today. 
Okay, so former Seventh-day Adventists that joined the church, um, do, the church says, do not need to be baptized again. However, we do hold for conditional baptism, so it is possible for someone to be baptized in the Catholic Church if they have not been validly baptized before. And of course, there are two major doctrines, Sabbath day worship on Saturday and Christ's imminent return, which they still hold dear in their heart. And I would say, as my last point, that maybe we have something to learn from the Seventh-day Adventists on this point, not in the sense that Ellen G. White held his return or William Miller, but a serious hope and desire in our heart to see Christ. And I think that's something that Catholics could cultivate again, a true hope in our heart that Christ comes to free us from the situation we find ourselves in today and reestablish his kingdom on earth in all of its glory. So, with that, hey, I didn't do too bad on my time. Please welcome my brother, Subdeacon Sebastian Carnazzo. Okay, as my brother had mentioned, there are a lot of doctrines where you see a variance between the Orthodox Catholic teaching and the teachings of Ellen G. White or the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we don't have enough time to cover all of those. Some of them we even alluded to or discussed in brief with the Jehovah's Witnesses, because you remember they've come out of the same Millerite movement. So tonight we're going to talk about four of the most uh, serious errors, exegetical errors, that then uh, bear fruit in their doctrines. So, first of all, soul sleep. We talked about this last time. Remember in Ecclesiastes 9.5, we hear the author saying that the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. We talked about this in detail last time, so we're not going to turn to all these passages. Uh, if you were not here last time and you want some more information about some of these topics I'm covering in brief, listen to the recordings on the website. Ecclesiastes 9.5a, that's the first part of the verse. The living know that they shall die, but the dead know nothing. Therefore, the Jehovah's Witness, or the Seventh-day Adventist, concludes that the individual has either ceased to exist, or has fallen asleep and is in some sort of a spiritual sleep state. The second half of the verse, though they may read it to you, they never really focus on it, and if you look at it very closely, you'll see that there's a major problem for the Millerite, the Seventh-day Adventist, or the Jehovah's Witness. And that is, it says, there is no more memory of them or reward for them. Well, the Jehovah's Witness and the Seventh-day Adventists believe that when Christ returns, he will either recreate you or wake you up from your sleep state, and those who are faithful Millerites or faithful Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists will then go into their heavenly reward. So, if the Seventh-day Adventist or Jehovah's Witness wants to take this verse literally in the way that they're doing it and out of its context, they have a major problem when you read it real carefully. And this is a good lesson for us, a good principle in general. Whenever someone takes you to some verse in the Bible and shows you that verse and you think, wow, that, wow, that really seems to contradict something I've always believed. Well, if it's contradicting the orthodox faith that you received from the fathers, then I promise you, that verse is being taken out of context. Oftentimes, if you just read the rest of the verse, or the paragraph from which it's being taken, you'll see the contradiction. But usually the Catholic gets scared, says, oh wow, I don't know about that, sorry, take me to your leader. What they need to do is say, let's slow down here and read this, because I don't remember reading this passage like that. And a principle within Protestantism, and Seventh-day Adventism is part of this, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. 
When you show the Seventh-day Adventists that their, their interpretation of this passage is problematic, you can show them a plethora of passages in the Old New Testament that show that those who have died are neither in a sleep state or have ceased to exist. And we covered these in detail last time, so we don't need to go uh, and look at each one of these tonight, but I'm just going to mention them briefly. 1 Samuel chapter 28, we remember Saul was afraid because the Philistines were about to conquer him, and he went to the witch of Endor, and the witch of Endor conjured up the spirit of Samuel the prophet, who had previously died, and had previously been the advisor and prophet to Saul. But Samuel, before he died, had warned Saul that he'd become an enemy of God. And so he no longer hung out with Saul. And eventually Samuel died. Now Saul's in a horrible situation. The Philistines are about to attack, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. What is the will of God? There's no prophet to advise him, so he goes to a witch. Through the mercy of God, God allows the spirit of Samuel to come back from the dead and speak to Saul. Okay, now it's a strange story for us. But if you look at the story, you can see Samuel comes back and he tells Saul the same thing he'd always been telling him. You are an enemy of God, and tomorrow when you fight the Philistines, you're going to die. In fact, your sons will die with you as a sign of your wickedness. And then he goes back to sleep. Samuel. The Jehovah's Witness in the Seventh-day Adventists will take that passage and interpret it as a demonic uh, vision or something like that. But if you read the passage real carefully, you can see that the narrator of the passage, the inspired author, says to you that it is Samuel. It's the inspired author, the narrator, the voice as you're reading, that says that Saul knew it was Samuel. He says that Samuel spoke. That's the inspired author, the narrator, telling you that information. And what happens is the Catholic or the Baptist, that the Jehovah's Witness or Seventh-day Adventist is trying to run through this passage quickly, doesn't notice that. Also, in Luke chapter 16, so moving into the New Testament, Luke chapter 16, we're all familiar with the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember the story, Lazarus and the rich man both died. Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man went to a fiery torment. Now, according to the Seventh-day Adventists, they should be in a sleep state, or, as oftentimes they won't tell you, or many of them believe, they've ceased to exist, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. You have a major problem as a Seventh-day Adventist or Jehovah's Witness with this passage. Abraham has, been, has not existed for about 2,000 years, or has been asleep for that long, and yet he's awake. He receives Lazarus. Lazarus, who should have ceased to exist or be asleep, is being carried by angels, and he goes to the bosom of Abraham, who apparently does not exist or is asleep. And then Abraham, who does not exist or is asleep, is speaking to the rich man, who does not exist or is asleep, and they're having a dialogue. Obviously, they're not asleep, and they clearly have not ceased to exist. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists are aware of this passage, and they will say, well, this is a parable. Oh, man, I thought I had a good one there. It's a parable. I didn't realize that. Well, what parable in the New Testament can you think of that is not based in reality? The sower went out to sow, right? A man went out and planted a vineyard. These are based in reality, otherwise the parable wouldn't work. And so this parable, even if this is a parable, even if this is a fictional story, it's based in a real situation. That is, that there is a place of torment, that there is the bosom of Abraham. Otherwise, the story wouldn't make any sense to anyone who was listening. Furthermore, in the New Testament, a number of other passages. Most importantly, you can turn your Seventh-day Adventist or Jehovah's Witness to, this is all in your handout, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, and Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. 
This is where Paul talks about looking forward to martyrdom. He says, I, I look forward to being away from the body and at home with the Lord. Not, I look forward to ceasing to exist or falling asleep. I look forward to being with the Lord. You will hear falling asleep. Lazarus has fallen asleep, Jesus says to his disciples. This is a euphemism in the uh, Semitic world. Today we say someone has passed away. Or sometimes you may even hear, he's fallen asleep in the Lord. This is a euphemism, a nice way of something that's very harsh. Someone's died. So in the New Testament, you'll hear the euphemism, to fall asleep. Someone's fallen asleep. But it's a euphemism, just as we use the word pass away. Furthermore, also in 1 Peter chapter 3.19, when Jesus was in the tomb, he went in the spirit, we hear Peter saying, to those who had died formerly. Why? You hear at the end of the chapter? To preach the gospel so the gospel will be preached not only to the living, but also to the dead. Right? Now, those dead, remember for Jehovah's Witness, don't exist. Or for the seven-day Adventists, they are asleep. So therefore, they couldn't hear the gospel. Right? So obviously, they're in some sort of a cognitive state. Furthermore, in Revelation chapter 6, and again, we looked at all these passages last time, Revelation chapter 6, we hear about the martyrs, the early martyrs, who John sees under the altar in the temple in heaven. And they cry out, even though they don't exist or are asleep, they cry out for vengeance. And then God speaks to them and says, quiet, hush it, you'll be okay, just wait a little while. And he gives them a little garment, sign of their purity and martyrdom, and says, wait a little while for the vengeance. Remember, these, these don't exist or they've fallen asleep. It doesn't work. So there's a number of passages that you can take your seven-day Adventist and Jehovah's Witness to to show them this. With the Jehovah's Witness, this won't work a whole lot. Remember, we talked about the Jehovah's Witness. You can flip around the Bible all you want. Well, they'll, con they'll just conclude that you know the Bible better than they do, and they need to go to more uh, witness meetings and study more. What you need to do is show them the history of the Watchtower and the history of its false prophecies. The seven-day Adventists, as my brother mentioned, are more diversified. And so attacking Ellen G. White, all you'll do is turn a Seventh-day Adventist into a non-Ellen G. White Seventh-day Adventist. So what you need to do with the Seventh-day Adventist is take them to the Scriptures, show them in love, show them patience that their doctrines are erroneous, and pray while you're doing it, before and afterwards for them. And also for the Seventh-day Adventist, very important to give them historical documents from the early church the Didache, the early church writings. Many of them don't know these things exist. Most Protestants don't know these things exist. Most Catholics don't know these things exist. I was just talking to a Calvinist the other day about this. Yeah, you know, you've got to read the Didache. What's that? Or, you know, or the um, Epistle of Barnabas, or the writings of Ignatius. Well, how do I get those? You can get them anywhere. Walk into, you know, borders. The Apostolic Fathers, Penguin, you know, a little paperback for a couple dollars. You can read them. You'll find that those early church writings have converted a number of people Protestants especially, and seven-day Adventists, they oftentimes, when they start to read those, start to realize the story they've been told about the early church and the interpretation of the scripture is false. And they start to see in those early church writings the Catholic and Orthodox faith and the Orthodox church. Okay, a uh, second major error. My brother mentioned this as well. 666 and the mark of the beast. 666, they interpret as, and you'll hear this in some strange groups of Protestants as well, 666 is the number that adds up, it's a code for the Pope. Why? Well, 666, if you take Vicarius Filii Dei, the Latin, and you add to it the 
number calculations based on the Roman numeral system, you can add up to 666. Well, what's the problem? Serious Protestants do not hold to this, by the way. But Seventh-day Adventists, this is very common, the Seventh-day Adventist church, and you will hear it among uh, some smaller strains of Protestants. We talked about this in detail back in July 09, the first institute talk on the book of Revelation. Some of you, are any of you there? That first time? Okay, good. July 09, that's on the website. I recommend you, if you've never heard this before, you want some more information, go to the website, and you can look at the three different talks on the book of Revelation in great detail covering this topic, but I'll mention it briefly, explain it to you. Vicarious Feeling Day has never been used for, as a title for the Pope. And they won't tell you that. Well, but it sounds very papal, doesn't it? Okay. Second, it doesn't add up that way. John's writing in Greek to a Greek-speaking audience, not the Roman numerals and the Latin numerical system. So it doesn't, doesn't work. Furthermore, half the numbers or half the letters in Vicarius Filii Dei don't, have, don't correspond to the Roman numerical system. And so they just put a zero there to make it work. There are no zeros in the Roman numerical system. So what you're dealing with here is a bunch of smoke and mirrors. It's not a title. It's never been a title for the Pope. They say, well, it's a secret, and they, it's on secret tiaras that nobody ever sees anymore. And uh, sometimes in the old Adventist magazines, they'll show you pictures of a tiara that's been doctored. They've drawn it on. They don't show those too often anymore. Furthermore, something else you can point out to Seventh-day Adventist is that that's a title for the Pope. One that he's never used, but that's a title. Revelation chapter 13 says this is the name, not a title. Now, this is completely going off on, the, you know, on a wrong base for exegesis, but since the Seventh-day Adventist has taken you here, you might as well show them a problem. There is a name that adds up to 666, Ellen Gould White. <laughs> And again, if you go onto the uh, website, if you think, whoa, that's interesting, go onto the website and you can learn about that. Ellen Gold White. G. White Gold. Okay? Ellen Gold White. Adds up to 666. Now, does that mean that Ellen G. White's name adds up to 666, so therefore she has the mark of the beast, and therefore she's the fulfillment of Revelation 13? No! But it just shows you that if I take some passage out of the Bible, out of its context, I can make anything I want. And one that's very uncomfortable for Seventh-day Adventists in that case. You also heard about Sunday, and this is related to the same topic, this is the second problem, that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. And they're getting this from the same passage in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, you hear about two beasts, one coming out of the sea, and then one coming out of the land. It sounds really scary. Listen to this. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems upon its horns, a blasphemous name with its heads. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, its feet like a bear, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and it had a dragon, gave its power, its throne, its great authority. Oh my. Then in verse 11, you heard about a beast coming from the land. You heard that this is interpreted by the Seventh-day Adventists as the beast from the sea is the Roman Catholic Church. One of its horns is the Pope. And the beast from the land is the United States. Again, Back in the time of Ellen G. White, this might have worked. Today, it doesn't work so well. It's not so convincing. That's why you don't hear about it too often. This is not one of the first things that your seven-day Adventist friend at work will tell you at the watering hole. Right? They'll talk to you about the Sabbath and other things like that. But you're not until you get deep into it will you hear this kind of stuff and start reading Ellen G. White's writings. So on verse 16... The beast from the land causes all to follow it and worship the beast from the sea. 
and it gives them a mark on their hand and on their forehead. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let him who has understanding reckon the number of the beast, for its number is a human number. Its number is 666. <gasps> Are you uncomfortable with that number? What does it sound like? 666, that must be really bad. Six, what's six? The, the imperfect number, why? Because it's 666. You'll oftentimes hear, well, you see, seven's the perfect number in the Bible, and six is one less than that, so it's the sign of imperfection. You see? No, because seven's not the perfect number in the Bible, first of all, and three is, and in Bible numerology, and six would just be like a B plus. One would be the imperfect number, or 14 or something like that, right? One less, it's imperfect, oh. And what you'll find in commentaries or in dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, six is the imperfect number. You'll hear that little calculation, and they'll only give you this verse right here. Because this is the only verse, and a circular reasoning, that can in any way make you think bad about the number six. If you go throughout the Bible, take out your concordance and look at the number six, you'll find six is a really good number in the Bible. God created the world in how many days? And he said it was really imperfect? No, very good. Isaiah 6, he looks up into the heavens in the, in the temple, and what does he see? The how many winged seraphim? Six. Uh-oh, demonic, right? When the temple is rebuilt in Ezekiel's glorious vision, you'll find that six is in every calculation. The walls are six cubits thick and 600 cubits long and six, 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 six. Six is the number of perfection of creation in the Bible. So, 666, what is the author trying to convince you of here? Well, I already told you, Ellen G. White has the mark of the... No. So what is he trying to convince you of? 666 does not only play, appear here in the Bible. It appears somewhere else in the Bible, the Old Testament. How original, huh? In the New Testament, if you want to read the New Testament, you've got to read the Old Testament. The New Testament is just the last chapter of the book. 666, 1 Kings chapter 10, we hear about the 666 talents of gold that Solomon had. And the author is trying to show you the excesses of Solomon, how he caused the Israelites, through his excesses, of gold and silver, horses and chariots, and foreign wives, to fall from the law. What is the law of God? You shall have only one God before you, O Israel. All right? <clears throat> Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. So the problem in the book of Revelation is that Nero, in this context, is causing, like Solomon, the God's people to worship foreign gods. Solomon did that? Oh yeah, that's the whole point of chapter 10. First Kings chapter 10, Solomon had built the temple of God, and then he built pagan temples for all of his pagan wives. Part of the state religion, polytheism. Nero, make any sense? Nero's name, Neron Khazar, actually adds up to 666. Again, you want more details on this? You can go to the website. Okay? Third, Sabbath keeping. Third major error, and this is the one that people usually think of. This is the one that comes right out when you're first talking to a seven-day Adventist. Sabbath keeping. They usually begin the conversation like this. Are you a Christian? Yes. Or, 
Unfortunately, some of you might say, no, I'm a Catholic. Yes, I'm a Christian. Okay. Do you believe in the Ten Commandments? Yes, yes. And if you're a Baptist, oh, yeah, we got, we got a big stone marble thing in front. and Yeah. What are they? Give me some. Depends how you divide them. It doesn't really matter at this point. I am the Lord your God. You shall know your God before you. What else? Now take the Lord your God's name in vain. Also graven images if you want to divide it separately from the first commandment. But that's not here or there. And then what else? That's getting clear. There's some, I still hear the cacophony. Now you're at a Sabbath talk, so you're probably you know, ready for it. But the, keep, holy the, keep holy the Lord's day. And the seventh day of this says, oh really? Is that what it says? Or if you say keep holy the Sabbath, they say, do you? Oh yeah, I go to church on Sunday. Is that what the Bible says? And they'll turn you to Exodus chapter 20. Let's see what it says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor on all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord. That's the seventh day of the week. That's Saturday. You Baptists and you Catholics, wrong day. They'll go on to show you. You'll say, wait, that was the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. They'll say, oh, hold on there. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah was prophesying. This is the last chapter of Isaiah. And he says in verse 22, For this, the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants, your name remain, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall worship before me, says the Lord. That's what Isaiah says about the future, the Messianic age. huh? Before we get too far beyond those passages, let's look at those more carefully. Exodus chapter 20. What does Exodus chapter 20 say? You shall rest. It doesn't say you're supposed to go off worshiping somewhere. It says you shall rest. And furthermore, the first passage where the Sabbath is mentioned is chapter 16 of Exodus. And they'll oftentimes take you there, but moving very quickly, we'll skip over where it says that you shall not go out of your place on the Sabbath. Every other day you go out and work. That day you stay home with your family. You don't move from your place, it says. Don't go out of your place. I found this actually fruitful Sunday Adventist. You can show them, you know, you're not supposed to be leaving your house on that day. Oh, look at that. And I actually did get a Sunday Adventist at one point to stop going to a Sunday Adventist church based on that verse. So, all right, Isaiah 66. What does Isaiah 66 really say? Look at that. I had a seven-day Adventist turn me there. He said, I said, well, that's the New Old Testament. This is the New Testament. He said, yeah, look at Isaiah 66. So I opened it up, and he looked over at the Bible, and he said, Hey, you've read that before. And I said, oh yeah, I'm a Catholic. So we looked at it, and I knew what he was going to do with it, and I looked very carefully, and I said, look at verse 23, from new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath. Does it really say that we will be worshiping every Sabbath? Is that what the passage says? He said, oh yes. I said, well, it also then says we should be worshiping every new moon. Do seven-day Adventists worship on the new moon? Oh, no, no. That's not the point of the passage. Sabbath to Sabbath, new moon to new moon is week to week, month to month. That is, continuously. This is the calculation of time in the Old Testament. That's all. The Messiah will be worshipped by all forever is the point of the passage. All right. In the New Testament, though, then they'll turn you and say, well, in the New Testament, there's tons of passages that show you that this was the custom of Jesus and the early church. In Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus, as it was his custom, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. You see? Don't you like to do what Jesus does? 
Well, yeah, it's nice to do what Jesus does, but Jesus also wore sandals. Some of you are not followers of Jesus. Jesus also wore his hair down to his shoulders. Maybe if we're in California, maybe. Might work. Um, Jesus did a lot of things. Jesus was circumcised. Is it according to the New Testament law he was circumcised? No, it was anything clear in Paul's epistles. No more circumcision. So, though we see Jesus doing in the New Testament things that are part of the customs and traditions of Israel, that's because he walked according to the law of Moses. But then he died and rose from the dead, and we are baptized into him, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6 through 8, freed from that old law and yoked to God through Christ Jesus in the new covenant. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, they'll turn you and show you that when Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, Pray that your flight may not be on the winter or the Sabbath. So you see, he was concerned for the early Christians lest they have to flee on the Sabbath because they're Sabbath keepers and he knew they would be. Remember Exodus 16. You shall not go out of your place on the Sabbath. That would mean that God has now contradicted his law. If he causes the people of Israel to flee, the people of uh, the Christians to flee, not even going down the house, but flee, don't go even in to get your jacket or a lunch or anything. Just run when you see these things. But the law, Exodus 16 says, do not go out of your place. Matthew chapter 24 is not showing you that the early Christians would be keeping the Sabbath, but the Sabbath, like the winter, would be a problem for them to flee Jerusalem. If they're fleeing Jerusalem on the Sabbath, their Jewish neighbor might look at them, where are you going, Avrahim? Why is the U-Haul in your driveway? Oh, nothing. If you go through Jerusalem in the conservative quarters today, they'll throw rocks at your car if you drive on the Sabbath. Imagine back then what they would do to you. So, or fleeing in the winter, how dangerous and how difficult it would be with a family and children. That's what it's all about. Acts chapter 13, they'll say, well, in the early church, though, we see them doing this. Acts chapter 13, we'll look over to Acts chapter 13. We see Paul worshiping on the Sabbath. In fact, it seems to be his custom. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his company sailed from Paphos. And then, eventually, they came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. You see? And they'll turn you to a bunch of other passages, and I have them listed there for you in Acts, where Paul goes into a synagogue on the Sabbath. If you look very carefully, he's not going into sing Kumbaya. He's going in there because that's the fruitful place for conversion in every city. He goes into the city to convert the Jews first. If you go in the marketplace and say, I want to tell you about Jesus the Messiah, they'll look what? Who are you? What's, what's a Messiah? You go to the synagogue, and they're all waiting for the Messiah to come, and they're ripe for conversion. He goes to the synagogue, half of them accept Jesus the Messiah, half of them don't, he gets kicked out, and then he goes to the marketplace and sees what he can do with the Gentiles. He does that in every city. If you read these passages carefully, again, in context, you'll see in every place, he goes in, and he immediately stands up and preaches the gospel. And he usually gets in a fight. He's not there to worship. The Seventh-day Adventist will then tell you, where in the Bible, in the Bible alone, is Saturday worship gets switched to Sunday? And this Baptist or the evangelical usually falls for this. The Bible in the Bible alone. Wow, and they start flipping around. I can't find it. Because that's not what happened. 
The church worships Jesus on Sunday because that's the day of the resurrection. That's the day He appeared to His disciples. That's the day He appeared to them on the road to Emmaus and broke bread. That's the day He appeared to them in the upper room in John's Gospel. That's the day He gave them the power to forgive sins. And that's the day He appeared to Thomas a week later and said, Thomas, believe. So the day of the resurrection, this first day of the week, is the, the Christian feast because this is the day Christ rose from the dead. And this is the first of the week, and this is when we worship Him. Saturday keeping, or Sabbath keeping, eventually fell away because the early Christians saw it associated with circumcision, the kosher laws, and the rest of the Old Covenant. Colossians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 4, and these are in your notes, we see Paul saying, do not worry about Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, days and weeks and years, but rather, these were all shadows of what was to come. The fulfillment of all of them is in Christ. Finally, we'll close with this. And that is the fourth point. This is what my brother mentioned. Is This is the problem with the seven-day Adventism is their Adventism itself and the type of Adventism. Would that we oftentimes you know, thought daily about the coming of Christ. Do we wake up in the morning and say, Jesus is coming and I'm waiting for Him. I want Jesus to come today. I'm hoping He will come before I get off work. Huh? It would be wonderful. We should be looking forward to the coming of Christ. If we're not, we're scared, we've got something to do, we better fix our lives. But the problem with the Adventism is not that aspect of their Adventism that is waiting for the imminent coming of Christ, but rather trying to make predictions and calculations that distract them from the job of the Christian mission. And Catholics and Protestants fall into this as well. Whether Charles Taze Russell or Joseph Smith or Ellen G. White or Miller, whoever it is, the problem is they got distracted with trying to calculate when Christ would return. Something that is none of our business in Christ's own words. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Just before Christ ascended, these are his last words to his disciples, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, Look, Daniel chapter 8 will give you the code. No. He said, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He said this also to disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. What did He say? The last words to them, Matthew's Gospel, go out and preach the Gospel, converting the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like Peter walking on the water to Christ, when we take our eyes off Christ, it's then when we get distracted and we start to sink. Our job is very simple. Preach the resurrected Christ. Convert the nations by that Gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much. Please welcome Mr. Michael Sensini. I would have uh, liked to have heard your all's talks in 1977. Uh, to make my story, long story short, I hated Catholicism. And now I love Catholicism. And how do you get from that point to this point, being a Seventh-day Adventist for 30 years in between? I grew up, uh, I was born into a Lutheran family, baptized and confirmed Lutheran. 
Went to Sunday school, learned the Bible stories, loved them. That was in the 60s. In the 70s, I was entering my teenage years, going to public school. All the stuff that was being thrown out with the pop culture, the secular culture in the 60s and 70s. Uh, when I got to be a teenager with somewhat liberal parents, uh, I fully embraced all that the popular culture had and all the consequences and problems that come with that. At the age of 19, or after I graduated from high school, um, I went to a secular college, began college. I was in a philosophy class, and I was sitting there, and they were talking about all the different philosophers and what is truth. And I'm, I'm a young guy, you know, and I'm trying to de develop my life, uh, go forward and make something of my life. Uh, and I thought, yes, what is truth? And so I thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to know what truth is. So I thought, well, I'll read all these philosophers. So I started reading and reading. Um, that was the freshman year of college, 1977, 78. Um, I was working part-time at a newspaper plant in Westminster, Maryland, which is where I grew up and where I currently live. Uh, I was talking to uh, one of the pressmen in the break room one evening uh, about some dreams I was having. And I was probably 18 years old. He says, oh, you're having those dreams. He goes, that's in the book of Revelation. He says, are you a Christian? And I said, I don't know. You know, I was questioning. I said, are you? He says, oh, yeah. So we started talking. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. We became pretty good friends. I had grown up in our, in our home, as a Protestant home. It wasn't that they hated Catholics, but um, our family history in Europe, the ancestors, they were, they were persecuted by the church, the story we hear at Catholic Church caused them to go from Germany to France to England, eventually to America. They were Dunkards, German Baptists. So we grew up knowing, you know, Catholics, that's the odd religion. They worship Mary and they pray to statues and you know, all, the, all the Protestant things. That, that even though you have Catholic friends, you, you still look at Catholicism as a crazy, crazy religion. As I started talking with a Seventh-day Adventist gentleman and doing Bible studies, we're hitting some of these topics, these doctrines that, that were already shared. The things that started to impress me was they don't believe in an eternal punishment, an eternal hell. That's just a horrible thing. A loving God could not put someone to eternal punishment. I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> then he started talking about the Sabbath. It was on Saturday. It was changed by, guess who? The Catholics. Not surprising. I know the Catholics were up to no good. I've known that all my life. Look what they did to Martin Luther, you know. So I, we started to study. We go deeper and deeper into this. And it goes through. It's, very, it's a very convincing method and progression of study that they go through. I took these Bible studies, started to attend church with this gentleman, went to the camp meeting. And, I mean, this is a real old-fashioned, down-home country camp meeting with a big tent and a couple thousand people sitting in it listening to Preachers preach. Uh, they had the altar call at the end of it uh, where they pastors praying as everybody's singing 5,000 verses of I surrender all until everybody surrenders all and gets up and goes down. Um, I stood up that evening to give my life to Jesus because it is true that a lot of the silliness that, that you've heard about with Adventism, most of the Adventists that I know are sincere in their love for Jesus Christ and their search for the truth. And I was searching for the truth and realizing that in my disordered, sinful life, I needed a Savior. And I gave my life to Jesus as a grown-up, then at that point, the age of 19. 
I kept going to church, and I did eventually get baptized in the fall. Gave Bible studies to my dad, who had studied with Jehovah's Witnesses. He had some friends, but he, he couldn't do that. Um, I led my dad into the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, using marked Bibles, and you mark it from one verse to the next, and you go through this progression of studies and presentation of the Bible in a very convincing way. If anyone ever does that with you, um, just read the verses before and the verses after, and then you can usually start asking questions. Well, what do you think about this? What, what about this? They cherry-pick, and they put together a very convincing story. The story is the story that Ellen White tells. Even though they, a lot of them now are sort of distancing themselves from Ellen White, Adventism is still the Ellen White story. And who gave that to her? I don't believe it was God. I do believe it was supernatural. You can draw the conclusions of what I think about that now. But at the time, I was very convinced that she was a prophet. She was inspired by God, and this is the truth. And the evil Catholic Church, they changed the Sabbath. This is going to be the final test of, of mankind before Jesus Christ returns. Those who will be faithful to the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and those who will follow the laws of man. Sunday versus Saturday. As time went on that year, the first year, I was, it was my second year of college. I was entering it at Towson State University. I felt a call to the ministry and applied to Columbia Union College in Tacoma Park, which is now Washington Adventist University. I went there and studied theology into these doctrines. and I think I was blessed that a lot of the professors I had were Trinitarian, because I've just recently come to the, to the realization that a lot of Adventists are Arian or Unitarian in their thoughts and beliefs about God. So, but I, I had a good, good study. Never could really get into all the numbers and the formulas and the, the monsters and applying, you know, because I just didn't like that. But I liked studying Jesus and the cross, and that, that was important. The law of God was important. When I got out of, uh, graduated from college in 1982, I worked in, in the three years that I was at Columbia Union College. I'd done a lot of the things that Adventist ministers do. I sold um, Adventist books door to door during the summer, paying my way through. The, if you ever see the little blue Bible story books in the doctor's office, they're Adventist publications, as well as Ellen White's writings. Pretty unfortunately, made a very good living doing it during the summers. Uh, people seeking truth, and they will grab up anything. I'd like to go back and sort of re recall all of those books now. But I helped, gave Bible studies to people, sold the books, helped in public evangelism. You'll see prophecy seminars advertised in your areas a lot of times. Revelation seminars will come in, and they'll start you out easy, and then they get you right into the, to the beast and the Antichrist. Um, after I graduated from school, the economy was kind of bad. It was 1982, and, and none of the conferences in the Columbia Union were hiring anyone. So I went to work at an Adventist boarding school in Hagerstown as an assistant boys dean for a year. It was an interesting experience. They asked me to stay for a second year, and I decided that that wasn't the experience that I wanted to experience for two years in a row. So I went back home to Westminster and got a job in the human services field working with uh, mentally ill patients with a local hospital who were, who were being brought out into the community. Um, there, as I was doing that, I met my wife, who was working for the same, same agency, and she just happened to be Catholic. And we fell in love. And um, I was an Adventist, and she was a very devout Catholic. And we talked and thought, well... We'll respect each other's religions, you know, this won't be a problem. And we did, before we had children. And we, we got married in the Catholic Church. Uh, and my dad said to me when we left, he goes, you know, when the, when, when the Catholics marry you, you're really married, aren't you? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I was involved in church. She was involved in her church. 
we went into the uh, to DC. We worked did work with uh, Community for Creative Nonviolence at some of the homeless shelters. My wife was very active in the pro-life movement. I was very pro-choice at at that time, which a lot of Adventists are. But she had a book by this man named Dr. Bernard Nathanson called Aborting America. And she said, you ought to read this. I read it. I was pro-life. We respected each other's, um, other's religions. We moved to southern Maryland, to Waldorf. My dad passed away that year. He, he died an Adventist. Our ch first child was born in 1990, my daughter, Erica. It's interesting how all those things you say, yeah, because I, I had agreed when we got married, yes, I'll raise the kids Catholic, no problem. And then when your children come and you're thinking, religion is such a vital part of your life, those beliefs that you hold. And I was like, I want to pass that on to my family, to my children. And then, but I had promised, so I, I said, no, they can be baptized um, Catholic. But it reinvigorated, re-inspired my, my spiritual life. So I went, went to the church, joined the church down in Waldorf, Maryland, uh, became an elder, preached down there preached at various churches, Adventist churches in the area, gave Bible studies again to people, worked in public evangelism. And there was something then, as my wife was very active in pro-life down there, I, it had come to my attention, the word gets around, that some of the Adventist hospitals were providing a lot of abortions. This disturbed me, because now that I was pro-life, so I took up a battle, well, it was a battle, I lost, but I started writing letters to the union president, which would be comparable to a bishop of a diocese, and then to the general conference president, who I would be comparable to the pope, I guess. But first, when I wrote to the union president, I said, there's a lot of abortions that are going on in, in our hospitals. We'd like to see that stop, especially people who claim to believe the Ten Commandments and following moral law. They said, that's just rumors. You know, don't pay attention to the rumors. We're developing guidelines on abortions now. Don't worry about that. My wife knew Dr. Camilla Hirsch. She'd met her at a pro-life convention in Baltimore. She's an OBGYN. I guess she may be retired now. So I called her up. I said, how do I get statistics on abortions in hospitals in Maryland? Because I told her what I was doing. She gave me the computer center, told me to call them. I called them, told, them, told the computer center I wanted statistics on the numbers of abortion and how much money was being made doing them in Adventist hospitals in the D.C., Maryland area. I did that for three years. I kept getting free statistics. I mailed these statistics into the union president and said, here are the facts. There's thousands of abortions being performed in Adventist hospitals, and it's bringing in millions of dollars a year. We shouldn't be in this business. Here are the cold, hard facts. Never heard from him again. Sent it to the general conference president. Never heard from him again. While that's not the reason I left the Adventist church, it was sort of a deal breaker for me. So it was a transition period. We moved back to Westminster. I never went to the local church, which I had attended at times when I was uh, at first become an Adventist, Never joined, transferred membership, decided I, I can't go back there because of this, because of this abortion issue. And then other things like just some of the things that come out crazy as far as views of other Christians. You know, it's the Sunday keepers, and they're all deceived by the devil um, and the Pope. And it was starting, I'd met enough nice Christians selling books door to door to realize that, you know, there's a lot of good people out there that go to church on Sunday. But I couldn't be a Catholic at that point either. And I had no desire to go to any other evangelical church. My wife was faithful. She kept the kids going to school. We put them through Catholic school. She took them to church. They started to get their sacraments. But I had a very big disdain for the Mass and the Eucharist. And after I decided not to go to church anymore, anywhere, I thought, it's just you and me now, God. 
But the Mass and the Eucharist used to bother me the times I go to church because it's a accept this sacrifice in our hands and not understanding anything at all about the Mass, thinking, how can they sacrifice Jesus Christ over and over and over? There's only one sacrifice. So I would sit there and think evil things about the priest every time. I couldn't stand going to Catholic Church. There were homilies I heard from uh, some of the ministers that I really liked, really enjoyed. Something was sinking in. I think I was still rocky ground at that point. When my daughter was in second grade, it was time for her first communion. So we went, had all the family, a lot, of, a lot of Catholic relatives coming back to the house afterwards. And on the way home, I said to my second grade daughter, who is, what, what's that, seven years old, eight years old? I said, why don't you receive the wine and the bread together? Why don't you do both? And I started asking her, and she's like, well, I don't. And I kept pushing it. And this is a drive, a ten-minute drive from the church. By the time we got to the house, my daughter was in tears. My wife was upset. I, this is, that's the one thing I regret more than anything in my life on those special occasions because that was a pattern that repeated itself with confirmations and every special religious event in my children's lives. Everyone, it, it turned into turmoil, so they never knew, you know, what, what can we expect from Dad at this happy event. And I, and I regret that. My, my daughter has forgiven me. We've talked about that. We'll, I'll get to that. In the early 2000s then, I, I'm having this sort of hatred toward Catholicism, sort of depression, despair. Sitting in Mass one day, and Father Gerard Steffner, uh, I've never, never heard him preach before at St. John Church in Westminster, had a homily on the Mass. When we walked out of church that day, I, I said to my wife, if I was ever to believe the Eucharist, it would be because what that man just said. Around 2004, we were in the bookstore at St. John Church in Westminster, and um, I'd been reading... G.K. Chesterton and some other Catholic thing. I was looking and reading things, but I was talking to the lady that ran the bookstore, and I was, you know, I said, oh yeah, I just read The Everlasting Man by Chesterton. What a book. And she's like, yeah, and so we're talking about all these books, and I guess she thought I was Catholic, uh, because I asked her, I said, do you have any books here that would explain the Eucharist to a Protestant? And she said, yeah, we've got this little skinny book here that's, you know, it's pretty basic. She said, then we've got this fat book here that's real theological, uh, she goes, what would your friend like do you think would suit him? I said, well, it's for me. Uh, you better give me the fat book. <laughs> that fat book was The Hidden Man of Theology of the Eucharist by Father James T. O'Connor. It was my first exposure to early church writings ever that I took time to read, at least. And as I read through there, I thought, oh, my goodness, the Eucharist, the real presence of Jesus Christ in this sacrament was believed from the beginning. And then he went through this, he went through the Protestant views on this book, and I believe the Eucharist. There was no question in my mind anymore. Now, up till 2007, I couldn't be a Catholic, I just couldn't do it, but I believed the Eucharist, and this really weighed on me, because all my life it was, I looked at Jesus Christ crucified as my Savior, and the Eucharist, the, the, it just all came together, it made so much sense. Here's Jesus, my Savior, and I wanted the Eucharist, but I didn't want to be a Catholic. But the Lord moved through me a little bit, inspiring me, pushing me. In 2007, I gave Father Gerard Steffner, the man I heard preach about the Eucharist seven years before, a call and said, could I meet with you and talk with you? And he said, sure. I went in and met with him, and he must have thought I was a complete lunatic as I sat down. And I said, I'm a Protestant. I believe the, you know, I don't like Catholicism. I think it's, you know, the devil. I've had all these weird, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I've had all these weird beliefs. And I, and I went on for two hours like this, and he just sat there very patiently. And, and um, I said, but what you said in that homily, it spoke to me. 
And this man, this, this father is so humble. I love this man. I can't tell you how much. He looked at me and he said, it's not what I said, it's what you heard. No, it's what you said, but I know, now I know what he meant. And I believed it strong then and thought about being a Catholic, but that died out. That was in 2007. My daughter was a senior in high school, and in that year my spiral downward really went because when the seeds fall on rocky ground and don't take root, they'll die. And if you don't nourish your soul, your soul will die. And, and my soul was, was dying. It wasn't sleeping. It was dying. I had struggles with my own past, with the Advents. I still believe the Sabbath. I believe the Eucharist. My wife said to me one day, she goes, what's wrong? She goes, everybody notices how despairing you are, how miserable you are. I said, I believe the Eucharist. I believe the Sabbath. There's no Seventh-day Catholic Church. There's no Roman, Roman Adventist Church. And I'm not going to start my own church because they usually wind up not so good. My daughter graduated from Mount DeSales in Catonsville High School and was going to Mount St. Mary's University. It was, I guess it was the weekend. The next weekend was an orientation. And I was so despairing that week that every night I laid in bed and I prayed to God, God, I can't be a Catholic, I can't be an Adventist, just let me die. I know that you're a just God. Whatever happens to me, heaven, hell, whatever happens, you're just, I accept it. Let me die. I prayed that every night. The day of the orientation, we, we drove up. And I determined in my mind I was done with Catholicism. I didn't want to go into this because all Catholic things start out with Mass. So they were going to the Mass before the orientation began. I thought, I don't want to be around Catholicism. I'm going to just sit in the car. Who knows? Well, I had an idea what would happen. So my daughter got out and she says, come on. I said, no, I'll wait here. She kind of huffed away because here goes Dad again. And I was waiting for my wife to, to lay into me. And she said very peacefully and calmly, and she said later that she was surprised this happened because she was expecting me to erupt too. She says, you need to come. And I said very calmly, okay, and got out of the car and went. Monsignor Swetland presented the, uh, the homily. I don't know what else he said, but at the end he said, Jesus taught us how to live and how to love. And I remember a Seventh-day Adventist professor mentioning that in a class one time, and I thought that's true. And I haven't lived and I haven't loved anywhere near the way Jesus wanted me to live and love in my life. I asked my daughter, do you, are there any books that I, you think I should read? She said, read the book that Jamie, her friend, gave me, Cardinal Newman's Letters to Converts. My kids had given me a book uh, years before called A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Scott Hahn. I thought, well, I'll read my kid, the book that my kids gave me. I thought it was about the Promise Keepers group. I read that book, and Scott Hahn said that in the beginning, evening and morning were the first day, the seventh day then was eternity for Adam and Eve. And I said, oh, no, no, no. The seventh day ended the same way. Evening and morning were the seventh day because that's what we taught as Adventists and that's how we justified the Sabbath. I'm going to go home and I'm going to write him an email saying, you don't know what you're talking about. But before I did that, fortunately, I, I looked it up in the Bible and saw that it didn't say that. And a feeling came over me that all those times I'd read that, taught that, and it's not there. I can't tell you the feeling went through me that something, I told my wife, I said, I think it's a demonic blindness. And she laughed at me, but I don't know what it was. So my friend called an Adventist, and we were talking. I said, what's it say about the seventh day in creation? Evening and morning were the seventh day. I said, go look it up. He did. It wasn't there in his Bible either. And he didn't know what to say. So I went back to talk to Father Gerard. Uh, I was a little calmer this time. and said, I want to become a Catholic. I understand you can come in as, uh, at any Mass or go through RCIA. He goes, well, if you want to come in through a Sunday Mass, we'll talk to the other priest, and they'll see whether that would be appropriate for you. He goes, but go and pray about it. 
And that's what he told me the first time I met with him. Because I went in, I thought he'd say, yes, you should be a Catholic. Because if, if somebody came to me as a Protestant minister and said, I'm thinking about becoming a Catholic, I'd say, okay, sit down. We'll, you know, boom. But he said, go home and pray about it. So I went home and prayed about it. I thought I was, my journey had been solitary up to that point in time. I'm going to go into RCIA in the fall to be with other people in the same situation as I I read the Catechism of the Catholic Church that summer just to make sure there wasn't anything in there that would really throw me for a loop. Went into RCIA. Uh, during that summer, I remember one time going down asking my wife. She was downstairs. I said, would you teach me how to pray the rosary? Uh, when she got up off the floor and, and regained consciousness, she taught me how to pray the rosary, and I've had a devotion to our Blessed Mother and the rosary since then. Then, Easter Vigil 2009, my first communion my first confirmation, my son stood as my sponsor, and my daughter sat out there smiling and so happy for me. And I thought of all the, the tears that I, I brought to them, and they were there forgiving and supportive. And, and it's, it's been good. It's, it's been good since. And now the journey is going forward. Thank you. I'm sorry I took so much time, but Sebastian set precedent for that. Thank you, Mr. Sensi. Can you tell me the name of that fat book that you chose to read? Yes. Uh, that fat book was called The Hidden Manna, A Theology of the Eucharist, by Father James T. O'Connor. Great book. How are the Seventh-day Adventists like the Unitarians? How are they similar? Well, not all Adventists are similar to Unitarians. The only way that they're, they're similar, I guess, is in, the, in a Unitarian view of God rather than Trinitarian. A lot of the earlier pioneers were Unitarian. All the people I knew and professors I had in college were Trinitarian. Uh, and I just recently found out, because I'm on a blog and, uh, and forum where we talk with Adventists and try to dialogue, only recently become aware that there's a big Aryan Unitarian view in in Adventism, pioneers, and even to this day, people going back to the pioneer Adventism teachings. So it's a resurgence of that Unitarianism in some, in some sectors, not, not the whole church. The official teaching of the church is Trinitarian on their official beliefs. So, Mike, uh, what, what is the worship service like and, and any sacraments at all? I mean, obviously, you, the Eucharist. Yeah, it's, it's very simple. There's, they'll say there's no such thing as liturgy because liturgy is all form and formalism and doesn't mean anything. And yet there's readings of scripture, there's songs, there's prayers, and there's a homily. And it's like uh, any other low church liturgy. Uh, the center is not the altar. The center is the speaker and uh, the word of God. And so it's, it's a sermon with some songs, prayers, and, and some readings. So it's a, it's a very simple liturgy. Uh, so maybe some of the bigger... City churches, I think like Sligo may be a little more elaborate, but it, it follows pretty much that standard. A uh, spectrum of Seventh-day Adventism was mentioned a couple times in uh, the presentation. Do you know how David Koresh's sect fits into that? Oh, uh, he's an ego, egomaniac uh, who wants to be followed and adored by a lot of people. He used Adventist teachings to get lure people away, and then he went off in his own world, which is what happens when you don't have a magisterium, uh, an organized body. Uh, church couldn't control him, and he went off and did his own thing. So, But he was certainly never... I, I was an elder at the time, and I, we, I came on the news, and we're like, oh, no, this will be, be good for publicity. 
But he, he wasn't connected with the church other than having grown up Adventists and using their teachings to go his own direction. You said that Seventh-day Adventists don't believe in hell. So what happens to all the bad guys? Yeah, that, that was the thing that was real appealing to me. That, uh, and they, again, twist scriptures. That uh, in the end, the fires rain down on the evil. It consumes them, burns them up, and annihilates them. The time that they're burned is dependent on the amount of sin or the degree of sin in their life. So somebody who's being lost in hell for stealing cars won't burn as long as Adolf Hitler, who will burn a little bit longer. How long he'll burn, I don't know, a week, a month, a year, until he's paid for his sins, and then he'll go into annihilation. I'd like to just point one question to my brother. If you could just expand on that Campion point just a little bit more um, and his predictions. We mentioned Harold Camping tonight a little bit, and this is kind of your modern William Miller. Uh, and there's a lot of them out there. If you uh, get on the Internet and you punch in uh, any year you want, all of the predictions for the end of the world of all sorts of different groups and false prophets, oh, almost any year you want to pick, the year you were born, almost, even maybe the day you were born, you're going to find somebody in the world that predicted uh, either that day or something near to it was going to be the end of the world. And that's how I found out. I, I had listened to Harold Camping on the radio many years earlier. I listened to him, and he was very strange. And then I found on that website that he had started predicting the end of the world again. He had done it back in 94, and then he was doing it again, this time for 2011, May 21st, for the rapture, and then October 21st for the end of the world. As my brother mentioned the try-try again, one of the common things you'll see is out of pride, failing to admit that they were wrong, they'll change the event but keep the date. So what Harold Camping did was he kept the date of May 21st but changed the event. You all heard that the rapture was going to be coming. Harold Camping says, well, the, it wasn't the rapture, but Jesus did come. He came invisibly. Oh, have we heard that one before, right? William Miller did that. Charles Taze Russell did that. So you change the event and then keep going. So now he's bought himself five more months. So now he can still hold to his October 21st date. When October 21st comes and goes, he's getting older, so it may be that he may not make it to it. He will probably just refuse to change that date, but modify the event. Or the Lord has now, out of mercy, given us another, say, five years or whatever it's going to take. He's a very old man, so he probably won't last too much longer. Uh, pray for him. Pray for the man. It was one of the bigger turn-off things for me with Adventists. We're all the time running around. Jesus is coming soon. We'll define soon. A month, a year, ten years, a million years, a thousand years. And even as an Adventist, it struck me that it's more important to have your life ready at any moment than it is to be waiting, looking for the, the Sunday laws to get passed, or the Catholics are hunting you and chasing you through the woods uh, to make you worship on Sunday. Be ready now. Today's the day of salvation. Today. Don't, don't wait. Be ready now. Thank God for the sacraments and it's there to, to, to help us, to heal us, and, and prepare us for that time. We'll conclude with that. But, you know, I, I want to add something to what we said the past two weeks, and it goes for next week also, that it's not just a matter of tearing somebody down. That's all well and fine if they're wrong. But we also have to build them back up with Christ. And that's where I think Catholics could take a big lesson from the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the Mormons of knowing what you believe and being ready to share it with others in a convincing manner. And that takes study, that takes prayer, and that takes the love of Jesus Christ. And uh, you can't love what you do not know. Of course, you're all here at the Institute of Catholic Culture because you want to know. I encourage you to transfer that knowledge to love and bring it out to those whom you meet. 
next week, of course, Mormons. Thank you all for coming tonight. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.